And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. As we gather around your word this morning, Father, we ask that your spirit would give us understanding. These are strange events. Help us to unite them to what they mean for us today in our Lord Jesus' death and in his resurrection, taking on his body once again and taking up his reign over all the ends of the earth. Father, we ask that you speak, for your servants are here to listen. Amen. On Thursday evening, we asked the question from Psalm 88, does God work wonders for the dead? It's a psalm of lament. It is intense. It is of complaint. It is recognizing as the righteous sufferer in Psalm 88 goes down into death that darkness is his only companion, that he no longer has any friends. And you can feel the Lord Jesus as he enters into his passion praying these same words. Does God work wonders for the dead? This morning we read of a strange event where God breaks in and interrupts the reign and rule of death over our world and raises one, brings him to new life. But obviously in the 21st century, some 2,000 years removed from this event, from this morning, there has been room to question it. Is it real? Did this really happen? And there are two typical responses to the resurrection accounts. On the one hand, some people just say it's a fabricated story, a story made up by Jesus' followers sometime after his grisly demise. It was a way of commemorating him, remembering who he was, and celebrating his ongoing spiritual legacy in their lives. So it was well-intentioned, but it was just all made up. It's just the story, it's the stuff of myth and tale and fabrication. But there's some interesting features to what happens in Mark chapter 16 that don't seem to go along with the fabrication idea. You see that the first witnesses of the resurrection were two women. 
And unfortunately, in that day and age, women were not qualified witnesses of anything in a law court. And you needed at least two or three witnesses to prove a fact. And so if you were fabricating a story and you wanted it to be an absolute failure, guess what you would do? You would have two women be the witnesses, the primary witnesses to the case. And friends, the disciples understood that. And so does it really make sense that that they fabricated it and made that huge glaring mistake? Or perhaps were they recording a strange event on a very odd morning, and they were writing down the details as they remembered some years later, and they give us an authentic event of something very odd that took place. And so some think it's just fabricated, but that doesn't seem to mount up. Others want to say that um, it wasn't just fabricated, but rather the disciples were mistaken they just made a mistake. You, you have to realize that, you know, we in the modern world can't believe that dead bodies rise. But what we can believe is that there are spiritual things that happen. And so Jesus rose spiritually from the dead and appeared to his disciples. That's what it can seem, that there was a spiritual resurrection that took place. There was some kind of encounter that the disciples had in the middle of all their grief. But here's the problem. In the ancient world, it was common for Jews and pagans both to believe that they would have experiences with dead relatives, especially recently dead relatives. And so we have accounts of this in the literature. And guess what? Every time they talk about it, they never use the word resurrection. They had a whole other set of vocabulary for that. And so in our modern reinterpretation, we sometimes just want to skip over history. That they had all kinds of words to talk about the appearance of dead relatives, and they never use the word resurrection. And that is because amongst Jews and pagans alike in the first century, when you talked about resurrection, they very clearly understood what it meant. It meant re-embodiment. It meant someone taking back up their physical corpse, God bringing it back from the dust and from decay, pulling it back together and putting life back into it. And so in our world today, we're fond of reinterpreting the resurrection But all the reinterpretations don't seem to work with all the evidence and the facts of what we understand about the first century. And so it begs the question, why are people so opposed to the resurrection? Why does it bring so much tension? Flannery O'Connor, in her short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, and one of the most evil and awful villains in the story, gives us the answer. Listen to the words. Jesus has thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then there's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can. And this gets to the nub of it. It explains our real resistance. If Jesus got up from the dead, then there's nothing left for us to do but to follow him or but to get along with our lives and do the best we can. The resurrection is so threatening to us, and it brings up resistance in our hearts because it's an all-or-nothing thing. It either is the fact and event that changes everything about life, or it means absolutely nothing. If Jesus got up from the dead, then religion can't be something that's just on the side of our lives that we do when it's convenient, when it's Christmas or when it's Easter or when it works into our schedule. No, if Jesus got up from the dead, he commands our allegiance. 
He offers us a tremendous amount of gift and benefit. And we all instinctively know that He cannot be a commitment among our many other commitments. But rather that Jesus has to be the commitment of our lives if He truly did die and rise and was installed as the world's true King. And so the big question becomes this, is why would I follow Him? If He has such authority over my life, why would I entrust myself to Him? If our resistance is really about fear of authority, if it's fear of what this all means, why would we entrust ourselves to this risen King? Two things that we see in Mark chapter 16. First is this. Is that if Jesus is up from the dead, then our guilt and shame have no power. They've been canceled. Someone just before the service asked me the question in verse, in verse 7. You find it. The angel instructs the women, go tell the disciples, and then, and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. It's strange the way it's written. Peter was one of the disciples. Why is he singled out? If you remember back to chapter 14, Peter protests that he would never leave Jesus. Jesus says, no, you're all going to be scattered, and the shepherd is going to be struck. And he says, no, I will give my life. But then Peter is there in the garden falling asleep, and then at the trial he denies Jesus three times. Why is Peter singled out? Peter was especially in need of the grace of God at this particular moment in his life. He'd made a mess of it, guys. He'd messed it all up. He had turned on every conviction he had inside of 24 hours. Can you imagine the intensity of the guilt and the shame that he felt? This was a catastrophic, you know, idiot kind of move. How could you do this? And so the angel gives comforting words. Tell the disciples, and especially Peter, to go to Galilee to meet Jesus. Because Jesus had grace on offer for Peter. Because you see, the grace that's revealed in this gospel is not for those who have it all nice and tidy and together and are righteous and then just need a little perfuming. No, the grace in this gospel, the one that sends Jesus to the cross and the one which He rises to accomplish is for people who are absolutely messy and desperately broken and have messed it up. It's for people like Peter. It's for people like you. It's for people like me. Paul later in recounting the Gospel would say that he was the chief among sinners. That's what the qualification for being in the church actually is. It is for coming undone and being made right and reconciled through Jesus in death and resurrection. And people sometimes ask the question, well, why is it? Why does Jesus' resurrection make this possible? You can turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3. Paul explains this quite well there. In verse 16, he gives a summary of the confession of the church. He says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. This is speaking of the incarnation. Vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by angels. Proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world. Taken up in glory. And Paul there in verse 16 has given a summary of that we confess in the Apostles and the Nicene Creed, that Jesus was incarnate among us, 
that he died and he rose. That's what the line vindicated by the Spirit means. You also see the footnote there that that word is justified, justified by the Spirit. But then he was proclaimed amongst the nations and taken up into the glory, the ascension. But it is that line vindicated by the Spirit that becomes so important. You see, Paul uses the word justified there. Jesus wasn't justified from sin because he had none. But Jesus was justified or vindicated from the verdict that was placed upon him. The name of Satan just means the word accuser. He is an accuser. He is a condemner. And Satan attempted to bring Jesus, the holy and righteous one, down into death. And the problem was, is that to have a secure hold of anyone in death, you have to have sin. And so God vacates the verdict on Easter morning. He says that the trial is null and void. And when the, the verdict has been vacated, and Jesus is innocent, He's the one righteous one, death can no longer hold Him. He's out of it. And friends, here's the great mystery of the Gospel of what God does for us, that Jesus' death becomes our death. The penalty that He suffered becomes the penalty that is due to our sins, and then His life becomes our life, that we share in His vindication, and that we are now forgiven and free because we stand in Him. We are incorporated into His righteousness. It's not our standing that makes us stand before God. It's Jesus' standing. And so people like Peter, people like us, can stand. The biggest issue with this is normally not understanding the promises of the Gospel, though, for people. That the biggest struggles are normally with our own guilt and getting over our own guilt and our own shame. David Pallison, in his book, Seeing Through New Eyes, drafts out about four strategies that we often use in order to deal with guilt says the first one is that we compare, that we, we feel the pinch of guilt and shame in our lives, that what we tend to do is we compare ourselves to others, and we use advantageous comparisons. We look for people who we deem to be lower than ourselves. And so in order to deal with our guilt, we puff ourselves up to make ourselves feel better. You know what the problem is? You then start noticing that there are people better than you. And so your strategy turns on you. And so you can look down on a whole mass of people that there's a whole other mass of people that make you still feel extremely guilty. And so it doesn't work. You're not able to take care of your guilt and your shame. Second strategy that we do is we cover up. We cover up our sins and our feelings of guilt and shame with a veneer of kindness and kind of sticky sweet piety. We do all kinds of things in order just to hide what's really going on even though we're decaying inside. And we think if we just spruce it up, it'll be okay. But it normally only leaves us bitter and angry over time. It can work for a season, but definitely not a lifetime. A third strategy is that we misdirect. What tends to happen with this strategy is someone chooses to focus and fixate on something. Oftentimes, you'll find preachers doing this when they don't want to deal with their sin. They'll fixate on a particular doctrine, perhaps a secondary issue, and they'll make it a primary cause. This is of utmost importance. And so they cast all their attention on it, fixating on it, misdirecting everything, and never dealing with the primary problem. And we love misdirection. You can misdirect to all kinds of things. 
And a final one, and perhaps the penchant of our own culture, is that we escape. When dealing with our own guilt and shame, it's popular to just escape. We run, we lose ourselves, we give ourselves to sports, we give ourselves to pleasure, we give ourselves to work, anything to anesthetize the guilt and shame and to remove our attention from it. But the escape only lasts but so long. The realities of life come back to us. And friends, these are the best psychological tools we have in our kit to deal with the feelings of guilt and shame. We compare, we cover up, we misdirect, we escape, and they all fail us. And this is why being committed to Jesus, though, provides you resources that you desperately need. Because it doesn't fail. It cancels guilt. It cancels shame. It cancels failure and sin. It removes it because it's not based upon you. It's based upon the work of another on your behalf. That you are righteous in Him because of what He's done in death and resurrection. His death becoming your death means that your guilt has died. His resurrection becoming your source of life means that you are righteous in Him, not in yourself. And that's the gift of the Gospel to us. So if Jesus is up from the get dead, then guilt and shame don't have power. The second thing, why we should entrust ourselves to Jesus' authority. If Jesus is up from the dead, then we don't have to, have to paper over the reality of death. As a young pastoral intern, I was assigned for a rotation to work with the senior ministers at Second Presbyterian Church. So this was a church with 4,000 members, and over half of them were over 65. And so funerals were a normal part of our church rhythm and life. There were lots of them. The seniors minister was a man named Paul Sweats, and so he was well acquainted with death and dying and counseling. He sat down with me. I was 27 years old. I'd been to a couple of funerals. And he said, Chuck, what do you think dying people want to talk about? I give him the deer in the headlights look. I didn't know. Felt extremely awkward in those moments. He says, well, Chuck, what they want to talk about is they want to talk about death. Nobody else does, but they want to talk about death. And it was striking to me. Because that had been my experience. Nobody wanted to talk about death, including me. It was uncomfortable. We wanted to live in the eternal now and, and act like death isn't something real. And so we find euphemisms for it and ways to joke about it. Tim O'Brien, he's the author of a book. It's a book of autobiographical fiction. It's called The Things They Carried. It's about the Vietnam War. It won, it's one of the top 100 books uh, for the 20th century. It's really amazing. But he talks about the struggle that he and many of his friends had with death. Listen to his words. They were afraid of dying, but they were even more afraid to show it. When someone died, it wasn't quite dying, because in a curious way, it seemed scripted. And because they had li their lines mostly memorized, irony mixed with tragedy, and because they called it by other names as if to destroy the reality of death itself. And friends, this is what we do. We attempt to destroy the reality of death by calling it by other names. 
even though that there is a one-to-one ratio in this room, that just as surely as we took a first breath, we will all take a last breath. Friends, that is the truth about our lives, that we all must face death. And if we don't have resources to understand that and interpret it and live with it and for it not to undo us and destroy us and leave us in depression, then the God you serve is not worth very much. But friends, what happens in the resurrection is that we find resources to deal with death. That what we're being told here when Jesus emerges from the tomb and we have this open-ended story that ends with the disciples being being filled with trembling and amazement and astonishment is because they were recognizing all that was happening. That Jesus was the pioneer who went down into death and He's come out the other side. And that all who have their faith in Him and who are united to Him, that we too will be brought out of death. That death is not the last word. And this is why Christians have the long tradition of dressing up their dead and putting them down into a coffin. And that yes, we cry. And yes, it's tragic. And yes, it's sad. And we experience grief and loss. But as Paul says, we don't grieve as those without hope. We've dressed them up to anticipate another day. That's the hope of the Gospel. That God will raise the dead, not putting them on a spiritual cloud, but bringing them back into their bodies, reassembling their dust. That He will speak a word and the bones will come back together, bodies will be reassembled, and we will inhabit a new world free from sin's pollution, what God always intended all the way back in Genesis 1. That's the Bible's big plan. This is just no fire insurance so you can go and have a happy life and play a harp. The Bible's telling a much more compelling story than that. It's telling a story of God regaining creation's purposes through the death and resurrection of His Son. And He wants you to participate in that as well. And friends, that is real solid hope. That the resurrection of Jesus destroys guilt and shame. It destroys our existential fears of death. So what are we to do? What do we do with that? Verse 7, the disciples are invited to go to Galilee. There you will see Him, the angel says, just as He told you. And the disciples left the city and they went to Galilee, we know from the other Gospel accounts. But friends, that journey to Galilee was a journey of faith. They had been told to go, but they had to make the decision. Would they go and see Jesus, the resurrected One? They went in faith. And friends, this is indicating what the Christian life is to us. It is one of faith. Faith in the resurrected Jesus that He has conquered, that He is victorious, that He destroys sin, that He destroys death. And we go to Him in faith. Like these disciples who go into Galilee. We entrust ourselves to Him gladly because He's the great King who's conquered it all. And so, if He's up from the dead, there's nothing left to do but give yourself to Him. If He's not, then there's nothing left to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left. But friends, Christians over these 2,000 years have gladly proclaimed this. 
It's the story of our entire world. It's the story of the world being made right. And so go and meet Him in faith. Rejoice in all that He gives to you. All His great benefits that intrude into your lives. And find the real source and meaning of life here.